Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful privilege of gathering together as family in the precious unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the canon. Thank you for truth that sets us free, uh, for that is the reason and the cause of your Son becoming a man. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. May we never become familiar with that. Thank you also for the ability to gather together this evening, especially as we open up our Bibles to a new series. Thank you for giving us people in the Bible that we can relate to personally so that it's not abstract, it's not merely academic, but it's real, uh, it's life, come alive. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make an evening like this one even a reality so that we have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. So we do just ask for blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, a brand new series that we're on. We just closed up all that wonderful work and then some loose ends on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification proper. Uh, We're now on why are the apostles so encouraging. And uh, this will make a little bit more sense once we get going. On Sunday and Tuesday, the Spirit had us reflecting on the past year plus of studies. And this is really what it looked like. And as uh, Scott mentioned on Tuesday, there was, there's just an awful lot there, uh, really. And frankly, since I pulled all the rest of the lessons off of the website, this is the substance of our ministry. You're looking at it on the board. I mean, North Christian Church stands for what you see on the board in terms of uh, content, in terms of what we have put out as a ministry beyond these four walls even, Uh, 117 parts on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, and then we just tied up some loose ends. Uh, We called it the difficult passages, four parts in the gospels, uh, in the gospel context, six parts on believing, and then 30 parts on grace and works. So we finished all that. Uh, We had a nice year-end review. We had a nice Christmas special. um, And now we're turning the the, the, the corner, so to speak, So I'll start this way. Trust me when I say um, that I've been having the same conversation with the Spirit of Christ for months now. Uh, Remember, I'm out a bit in terms of curriculum. I'm always sort of asking and wondering because it helps guide my own studies, right? Um, So I'm always out in front and I'm always asking them, well, where do you want me to go? There's a lot of forks in the road. You can I've said it, and I'll say it again tonight, that you can't cover all this. You just can't, uh, even in a lifetime. There's just too much there. And so you have to be listening as a shepherd. You have to be listening to the guidance of his spirit. And so I've been having this conversation uh, for months now. And that conversation typically starts with me asking, frankly, after the gospel, where do I lead the congregation? Seriously, after the gospel, uh, not to sound odd, but it's almost anticlimactic in a sense, in the sense that 
That's the sweetest piece. That's the bread and butter of the Word. And so where do you go after the Gospel? And where do I lead the congregation? And instead of answering me directly, the Spirit kept bringing me back to a series of questions for me to ponder. And uh, I'm just sharing, here they are. Again, the question that I kept asking him was, what do we learn after the gospel proper? I mean, where do we go from a, from a curriculum perspective? And so he kept bringing me back to these kinds of questions. And he does this with me often. What did Jesus teach after he taught the gospel in its proposition form? Proposition meaning clear, upfront statements of fact. That's what a proposition means. So what did Jesus teach after he taught the gospel in its proposition form? In other words, after presenting the clearest possible facts about entrance into the kingdom of God, what did he do? That was the question on uh, his own people's hearts, right? What do I do to gain eternal life? How do I enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? And so he answered them. He became a man. He answered them directly, stood directly in front of them, vindicated himself, validated himself in their presence, and we know what happened. But that wasn't the end of his ministry, and that's kind of where we're at. It's, we've had the proposition of the gospel proper put before us. And yes, we've touched on other things, but for the most part, it was really nailing down what is the gospel. What is the good news? And just a side note, the answer to this question is, or these questions is actually not the topic of our new series, obviously, because our series, as far as you know, is on the apostles. However, it is the impetus of how I arrived at it, and quite possibly our next series. And so I'm just sort of showing you how he's leading the congregation. It's important that you understand uh, that it's not just a, it may appear to be a night by night, day by day, and there's a lot of specifics that are like that, but he has a direction for the congregation. And I'm trying to share that with you. I'm trying to share the kinds of conversations that he has with a shepherd. So we are going to get to the parables because to answer the question, to jump to the conclusion, that's what he did after he presented the gospel in propositional form, he said, okay, you don't have the ears to hear what I'm about to teach now. And there's a couple of reasons, key reasons why he did that. But there was a dramatic change between the propositional form and the parable form of teaching. And so we're going to sort of follow that lead. But before we do that, just reflecting, step back, all of you, way back, and view the New Testament from, you know, 50,000 foot level. So pretend, you know, you're looking down. I know this is abstract and I'm figuratively speaking, but elevate your thinking to 50,000 feet on the New Testament. If we were to focus our attention on just the time of Jesus' ministry now, which is roughly three years, but still at 50,000 feet, and we were to narrow our field of view down to, say, just the Gospel of Matthew, for example, what might we notice? What might we notice about 
the ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, we might see this up here on the board. If we were to look at the Gospel of Matthew at 50,000 feet, if Jesus' ministry were represented as a topological map, and that means, you know, the mountains and the valleys, we would see a clearly articulated valley right down the middle of it. One side would be labeled propositional and the other would be parable. So a good portion of his ministry would be propositional and there would be a huge divide. And on the other side would be parable. So in other words, the substance, if you would, of Jesus' ministry, roughly, you know, for lack of a better term, half would be propositional, the other half would be parable. So you might ask, well, then why is there a huge chasm right down the middle of Jesus' ministry? And the answer is simple. But before we do, and I've sort of let the cat out of the bag a little bit, before we answer it directly, uh, let's allow Scripture to make some more things clear for us. And as we do so, please do not forget the context of what the Spirit's saying already this evening. First, who did Jesus first minister to? Go to John 1.9. John 1.9. So we're going to look at, we're going to approach his ministry starting with, well, who did he first minister to? So we understand the gospel. We've got it down pat. But now we're sort of uh, rewinding a little bit in terms of uh, time frames. Who did he come to? Who did he minister to first? John 1.9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. So the very first people he came to did not receive him, up here on the board. But nonetheless, we have to establish the fact in Scripture that he did go to them in propositional form. He didn't speak in parables until some other point in time. So he came to his own, and they didn't receive him. Up here on the board... His own did not receive him. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah prophesied of in the Old Testament. His own people, led by Jewish leaders, rejected him first. They had the privilege of receiving him, but as a people, they did not. We know that not every Jew did. Obviously, his apostles are Jewish. But as a people, led by the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, etc., they rejected him. When we get back to the Gospel of Matthew at 50,000 feet, do not forget this very important point. Okay? Jesus showed a lot of patience with his own people, giving them holy proposition after proposition regarding his Messiahship. He didn't hide it. He didn't, write, he didn't speak in parable format. He didn't, um, he didn't do anything like that. He said, here I am. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was, that, that was his opening statement recorded in the Bible. Here I am. The guy you've been waiting for. 
And he didn't hide anything. He was right front and center. And he did miracle after miracle to validate himself, uh, etc. We know the story. In other words, he made sure that he spoke very clearly using Old Testament scripture all along the way and then actually fulfilling said scripture in their presence and explaining said fulfillment as well along the way. So he was very clear. And just so you know, when I use the word propositional, what I mean to say is that he explained hard facts about himself, his gospel, and salvation to the Jews. There was nothing hidden, in other words. He basically said, here I am. Up here on the board, John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Those are the words of Jesus. I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, your Messiah, you will die in your sins. Jesus was exceptionally clear on His presentation of Himself to the Jews. Do not forget that. In fact, He was so clear that the Bible tells us that even though they knew who He was, they still rejected Him. They knew who he was, and they still rejected him. That's how clear he was. There was no mystery about it, so to speak. Let me drive this concept of propositional home to you one last way before we move on. Let me ask you this. Uh, What's that a picture of? That's an airplane. That's a Learjet, to be precise. Now, what if I told you that it's a bicycle? No, really. That's a bicycle. And I refuse to budge. What would you say to me? (laughs) I hope you say, what are you smoking? Give me some of that. (laughs) That's how ridiculous rejecting the Messiah was. There was no doubt, in other words, that he was who he said he was but they refused him anyways. They rejected the proposition that he was the Messiah. So it was very clear. That's the point the Spirit's driving home. Okay? All right, back to our first point. Go to John 1.11. John 1.11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But it was very clear up here on the board. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah prophesied of in the Old Testament. His own people, led by Jewish leaders, rejected him first. They had the privilege of receiving him, but as a people, they did not. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So everything was clear, do you see? He made it very clear. It's important to note that Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, first. In fact, the first year and a half plus of his public ministry was specifically oriented towards saving the Jews, towards ministering to the Jews. He spent the first 
half plus of his public ministry ministering directly to those of his own house, so to speak, his own people, the Jews. And it was very propositional in form. During that same time, he was patiently convicting them of the truth about himself. But still, up here on the board, God promised the Jews a Messiah. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ. He clearly introduced himself through word and deed, and they rejected him. Now, once their rejection was consummated, this is the chasm in the you know, fictitious topological map. This is the, the valley, the chasm between the propositional side and the parable side of his ministry. They rejected him. Once their rejection was consummated, Jesus' teaching changed from propositional to parable. It didn't mean that his message changed. It didn't mean that his gospel changed. It didn't mean that why he came to seek and to save that which was lost changed. His heart didn't change. He just said, I'm done with you. I've given it to you straight up as clear as day. And I know you know who I am, and yet you reject me. So you will die in your sins. As I've taught you several times in the past, this is clearly revealed in Scripture. So let's take a quick look at that dreadful day when everything changed in Jesus' uh, teaching ministry. Go to Matthew 12, 1. Matthew 12, 1. And I'm just going to read this with you. Um, we could spend uh, you know, a, a vast amount of time dissecting Matthew 12 and 13, but we're not going to do that. We're going to see the flow of events because, remember, we're trying to get somewhere as a congregation. Uh, we're trying to stay at a 50,000-foot level. We're still scanning sort of the landscape, um, but we've got to grab some of the detail as we're doing so, but I don't want to get bogged down. Okay, so we're going to read it for context, especially, especially for context. I want you to think about what was going on in Jesus' ministry where this thing uh, reached a fevered pitch, if you would. Uh, I want you to understand who his audience was, the context of the discussion, uh, who was antagonistic to him, and what was his ministry to seek and to save. Okay? The nature was propositional, uh, but then it changed. So look at Matthew 12.1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. That was common, by the way. Uh, if you walked through someone's farm, you could grab the outskirts. If, uh, if it was uh, wheat or something like that, you could grab it and pluck it. And it was like public property, almost like, you know, the first, I think, four to six feet of everyone's property on a road is actually owned by the government. It's like that. And, and it was okay to grab someone's field. You couldn't go diving in the middle. But... This, wasn't, this was a common thing to do. Okay? A lot of foot traveling back in the day. Verse 2, But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Remember, the, the Pharisees were nitpickers. They made the Sabbath a yoke, an unbearable yoke. Everything was so, the minutia was so granulated that they made things up just to oppress people just to elevate themselves. The Bible never says that they didn't do a fantastic job at keeping their own ridiculousness, but Jesus despised them because they were oppressing people. 
The Sabbath means a rest, a day of rest. And yet it became something of a point of oppression. And from that viewpoint, that crooked, perverse viewpoint, they were trying to trap Jesus and his disciples. So the Pharisees saw this. They said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law on, that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. I just wrote a blog on that and quoted that scripture. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You would, have, uh, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Depart, departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might, what? Destroy him. So this was the relationship. He came to these people first. It had been a year and a half plus, and they were still after him. They were trying, they were conspiring to destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, 
And this is the turning point. We've been here many times in our studies, but this is the, this is the turning point. Any sin in blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. That's basically, remember, it's the Spirit's job. It's part of His special ministry to convict people of the gospel truth. And if you're calling Him a liar, then that's blasphemy against His Spirit or Christ's own Spirit. So blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. We're in the chasm now, if you think about that topological map. We're in the chasm. Things are just about ready to flip. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of, what, of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for signs, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and he does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And as most of you know, there's no real chapter break in the original language. So right into 13.1, that day, that day. In other words, this is all happening. You see, this is that awful day in history. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, 
and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. Dot, dot, dot. So what you see there is that great transition between the propositional format, if you would, of Jesus' teaching ministry, the blasphemy of the Spirit, the calling out of it, actually, and then he turns to speaking in parables. So this is where my pursuit of, go back to the beginning of class, you know, what's next, Lord? I mean, we just studied the gospel proper in propositional form. What is it? You know, let's go to the scripture. What's the gospel? Isn't that what we just did for a year and a half? Yeah. We didn't do a whole lot even with the parables. I alluded to them briefly here and there. But other than that, we didn't spend a whole lot of time on the parables. It was very propositional. So it was akin to the first part of Jesus' ministry. Where did he go from propositional? Where did he go? He went to parables. And so that's kind of where we're going to go as a congregation. And it makes total sense. And because we have the gospel nailed, the parables are going to make their layups. Once you understand the nature, the audience, the desire, the purpose of Jesus Christ, how simple he was, you see very clearly what the parables have to say. But we're not there yet. That's where I was going. I was like, yeah, right, parables. And he said, no, wait a minute. I don't want you touching those things until everybody has the same context. Context is key, right? So in this discussion that I was having with him, what's next? You know, what's this is going on for months? I'm like, I just think we're kind of running out of steam here on this series. Where are we going? You know, and I kept asking him, what's next? What's next? And he said, it's the parables. And, you know, in my flesh, being me, being that type of person, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So I started studying out the parables, you know, getting, preparing lessons, you know, blah, blah. And he said, wait a minute. Just wait. Here's, here's what I'll give you. Understanding the parables. Here's the reason why we're not going into them right now. <laughs> Due to the nature of parables being word pictures, meant to reveal profound spiritual lessons, it is imperative that you first understand the context of the parable. The context. I mean, the, par the quote, parable of parables, is the parable of the soils. Can you imagine jumping right in to the parable of the soils and not at least reading chapter 12? You'd have no context. You would have no context whatsoever as to what you're reading. And 12 is just one little piece of the greater context. So we've got to get a good feeling about the context so that we understand uh, when he spoke in parables, what was he getting at. So it's imperative that you first understand the context of the parable. The speaker, Jesus, of course, his audience, of course, cultural norms, time, place, circumstance, etc., we have to understand these things. Given our previous year and a half of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we currently possess a pretty firm grasp on Jesus, the speaker. I think that's fair to say. It was the remainder of those criteria that you see on the board 
in parentheses that caused me to halt taking you all directly to the parables. What the Spirit essentially reminded me of was something like this. Hey, you can't assume that your congregation has the same level of context that you do. Duh. I mean, I'm doing this stuff all day. I started this morning at 5.30 in the morning. I didn't finish this lesson until 3. And it was nonstop. I didn't even work out today. I know it's hard to tell, but... <laughs> I'm serious. That's a lot of time to be, like, mentally, you know, gripped like that. So I do understand the context. But not everyone here does. So it's really important. And that's what the Spirit said. He said, don't just run into the parables. We're in no rush. Don't run into them. Give them the context. So when I stepped back and addressed this challenging proposition the Spirit had taken, I began looking at Jesus' audience. Well, for the most part, we all have a pretty good understanding of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, etc. They always get picked on, so by virtue of their prominence in Scripture, uh, we just have a pretty good handle on the nature of their hearts. But here's where I've never done. I've never done uh, the, the apostles with you in the past, except one, which was Paul with a short series titled Meet Paul, the Apostle, which was back in March of 2009. That's the only sort of in-depth survey we've ever done on apostles. So my request to all of you, as we now venture clearly and purposefully into this series titled Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging, is this up here on the board. Think about this. Again, understanding the parables. That is our ultimate goal. He who has ears, let him hear. Matthew 13, 9. Since the Jewish rejectors were spiritually deaf, they could not hear the spiritual lessons encapsulated in Jesus' parables. However, the apostles would have had the most acute sense of hearing. Therefore, it behooves us to understand the apostles whom the Lord gave hearing to. Why? Because you and I have been given hearing. And we're going to be really encouraged by what we find in Scripture. You know, people say, St. Peter, you know, St. John. And it's not like that. These guys were wretches, just like you and I. There was nothing truly remarkable about them. And that's the whole point of the grace of God, isn't it? Isn't it? The whole dynamic of the grace of God is that we are nothing. And that God can take nothing and make something fantastic and magnificent to bring glory to Himself. It's when someone thinks there's something that that entire proposition fails. And that's what Jesus was saying in His propositional form to those Pharisees. You're going to die in your sins unless you accept that I am He. And He said, to heck with you. Now I'm going to start teaching in parables. So you don't understand what I'm saying. 
And then a little known fact that people typically don't think about is that, you know, to whom much is given, much is required, right? He was actually protecting them from additional judgment. Just think about that. Since they couldn't hear it anymore. Think about that. I don't want to get into that. But Therefore, it behooves us to understand the apostles whom the Lord gave hearing to. So that's what we're going to do. After all, Jesus' parables were meant to be heard, right? By who? Those with hearing. <laughs> well, who was those with hearing? The apostles, primarily. I mean, they were the start. They were the, the, the founding fathers, if you would, of the church. So if anybody heard them, and heard them correctly, and was taught them correctly, and mind you, they didn't always get them right away. Jesus had to explain them, so don't feel bad that you don't read them and go, oh my God, I don't understand it. That's part of my job. But they still did have hearing. And if you seek, you will find. Scripture says faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, right? Romans 10, 17. What I can tell you before we even take this study out of the gate is this. Jesus taught his parables to unexceptional men. And I say that with all respect to the apostles. <laughs> Jesus taught his parables to unexceptional men. The apostles were the primary receivers of the parables. And yet there was absolutely nothing remarkable about them. Other than the grace of God. And this is what we're going to see, by the way. So don't take my word for it. These were not remarkable men. The remarkable men were the ones who were plotting to kill Jesus. Quote, unquote. We ought to be very encouraged by this. Honestly, you ought to be very encouraged. Because it'd be one thing if, hey, look, if all the apostles were like, you know, Bill Gates smart, you know, Bre I don't know, I don't want to say Brad Pitt, but whatever, Brad Pitt, handsome, whoever, Clooney, whoever you girls like, right, um, was like the perfect man. If they were all like that, I mean, we'd all be like, what the heck, of course. But they weren't like that. They weren't like that at all. They were regular people, uneducated by, quote, world standards. I'm encouraged by that, very much so. And don't think that Jesus didn't choose them for that very reason. Could have chosen anyone. Go to Matthew 11.25. Matthew 11.25 So we got a couple of things going on. One big picture, where are we going? We want to go to the parables. We want to cross that chasm in a similar way that Jesus did from propositional to parable form. We want to understand what he was saying in the parables. Those things are magnificent, but we've got to understand the context. We have to understand well, what, who, who, who was germane to his audience, right? Who was he talking to? And what, where were their heads at? Well, they weren't even intellects. So we know that the parables weren't designed specifically to be really complex, right? These were like farmers, fishermen, those kinds of people. They weren't super intelligent. So Jesus didn't use and he didn't, he didn't encourage them even, as we'll see. 
to look at the parables much further than the basic truth of them, which is always very easy to see. And it's always, always related to the gospel proper. Matthew eleven twenty five, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So he was already starting that thread, if you would. That's back in Matthew 11, before even 13. You, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So think about that. He's actually referring to his own apostles, his own disciples as infants. Now, you know them, if you know them well enough, in their flesh, they would have been offended because they were the guys that were like, you know, Jesus is going to the cross and like, I wonder who the greatest is. So they would have been offended. What do you mean? Who are you calling infants? <laughs> Go to Matthew 13, 10. Matthew 13, 10. So this is after the chasm. This is after his ministry has changed now. Matthew 13, 10. After the, quote, blasphemy of the Spirit uh, verse. Matthew 13, 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. He's talking about believers and unbelievers here. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, that's the very description of an unbeliever, while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of the, this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. That's a call to repentance, but they did not do that. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower, and then dot, dot, dot. And he's off and running to the explanation now of the parable of parables. Okay, Again, the point on the board, Jesus taught his parables to unexceptional men. The apostles were the primary receivers of the parables, at least the hearers. And then there was absolutely, and yet there was absolutely nothing remarkable about them. So we ought to be very encouraged by this. Very encouraged. The truth is that Jesus chose the apostles because they were simply ordinary. You have to think that way. You actually have to look at the Bible and say, well, who did he choose? He chose ordinary guys. He chose regular folk. The so-called uneducated. The, the non-intellects. And what did he say? I mean, what does Scripture say in the New Testament? You know, you're going to take the, the uh, wise things and shame them, the wise in the world and shame them. 
with the ones that aren't esteemed, the ones that aren't wise. The base things, if you would. The truth is that Jesus chose the apostles because they were simply ordinary, appear on the board. But yet, here's the, here's the magnificent truth that we can all sort of cling to. These so-called uneducated men understood the parables. And the creme de la creme couldn't. It would be literally like being deaf and having perfect hearing. The apostles, especially Jesus' inner circle, Peter, John, and James, were chosen specifically because they weren't educated. Jesus chose character, faith, and purity over intellect. We're going to talk about these things. That's what you see. These guys were flawed. But you know they had the, that, the raw materials, right? They had the right raw materials to work with. They might not have been polished on the outside, but they had the constitution on the inside, the humility. And that's what Jesus wanted. He didn't want a bunch of uh, smart Alex. He didn't want a bunch of uh, you know, self-made men. He didn't want these pe those people. There were plenty of those. He didn't want them. They didn't even like him. He wanted these guys. He wanted unextraordinary people. Jesus chose them. He chose character, faith, and purity over intellect. Therefore, up here on the board, Jesus' parables are unlocked not by intellect, but by honest pursuit of the truth. If you think about it, why did Jesus explain? We just went to the second part of Matthew 13. Why did he explain? Because the disciples asked. Peter, Peter of all the disciples, this is what I'm learning too, doing my own studies here, Peter was constantly asking questions. Constantly asking questions, which is one of the reasons he was the leader. That's what leaders do. I've never known a good leader that's not inherently inquisitive. Put it that way. Never. Leaders are constantly looking to learn. They have a thirst to learn and learn and learn, and they're not afraid to ask questions. And if you read your Bible, guess who asks more questions than any other apostle? Peter. Guess who puts his foot in his mouth more than any other apostle? Peter. Guess who Jesus called the rock? Peter. Guess who was the leader of the pack? Peter was. <laughs> so we're going to be really encouraged. That's what is lovely about this topic that we're uh, endeavoring to pursue starting this evening, that Jesus' parables were unlocked not by intellect, but by honest pursuit of the truth. They didn't know what they were doing. But you know what? They just asked questions. That's it. I want to know the truth. Well, then it uh, looks kind of hard there, Jesus. Then who can be saved? With God, all things are possible, even with all you schmucks. <laughs> He's talking to you. <laughs> you guys are like, oh, those are fossils. <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> the Holy Spirit will reveal said truth to those with ears to hear. That's Matthew 13, 9. The apostles proved this. They were unremarkable people. 
but yet they understood things that the most intelligent people in their realm, in their known life, didn't have a chance of understanding. Hmm. So we might categorize the purpose of the parables this way. Again, this is just an introduction, folks. We're just getting our feet wet. It's going to be a lot of fun. We might categorize the purpose of the parables as twofold. Hide the truth from self-righteous intellectual unbelievers, the Pharisees. Reveal simple truths to those with childlike faith, the apostles. I mean, didn't Jesus call them infants? I thank you, Father. We're revealing these truths to infants. Childlike faith. They're not supposed to be complicated. That's the whole point. And trust me, I have many, I have volumes in my office and at my house and then on electronic form, volumes that literally, I'm talking about crazy minutia, rip apart the parables. Well, you see this grain of sand over here. This represents the uh, South Brazilian gnat form. Latin name is Basicalix. And, and it stung one of the apostles, you see. Shut up. Shut up. He was teaching uneducated people. Fishermen. Just think about that. Just think about that. What did he do? Why did he come? To seek and to save. The, the, that's what we we're going to learn. The parables are not meant to be difficult at all. They're lovely word pictures. The truths are profound. But let us not make the same mistake that many before us have. And it helps to understand the audience that Jesus was speaking to. These unremarkable unexceptional, ordinary people. Again, Matthew eleven twenty five 25 said, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yeah, go there. Go back there. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. He's praising his Father for this kind of an approach, you see. Why? Because Jesus despised the intellectuals of his day. That's the true statement. He called them vipers, right? He despised the intellectuals of his day. And he despises those in our own society today. You can be smart and not an intellectual. You can be the smartest person in the room, Paul was, and still be humble. So it's not a one-to-one -one correlation always, but there certainly is a very high correlation to it. Verse 26, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think of the contrast of just the Sabbath. 
the, the intellectual Jews oppressed people. That yoke was very heavy. People walked around afraid of being excommunicated from the, from the church because they did some work on the Sabbath. They were living in fear of being ostracized. You can remember the religious institution was the governing institution back then. They were sort of all-encompassing. So if you're on the wrong side of these people, you had a big problem. You were now no longer accepted, you and your family. What kind of yoke is that? So Jesus, in context, is saying, look, he says, look, take my yoke upon me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, unlike them. Unlike them. They've got it all wrong. That's what Jesus was saying. It's beautiful. Again, the point on the board, the twofold purposes or purpose of Jesus' parables hide the truth from the self-righteous intellectual unbelievers, the Pharisees, for example, reveal simple truths to those with childlike faith, for example, the apostles. For now, that's all I'm going to say specifically about the parables. I just wanted to give you enough to, so that you would understand where I've been in, on your behalf in my labors to try to navigate where he's taking us as a congregation. I'm sharing uh, where we're going. And we're going to get to the parables, and it's going to be that same sort of shift from propositional gospel proper to parables. And because we have ears, we can hear. And it's going to be a lot of fun. But before we go jumping in, we want to understand the audience that Jesus was teaching at the time that was first presented uh, these parables. So that's all I'm going to say specifically about the parables. They'll, they'll pop up here and there again for the sake of um, continuity and you know just general construct of the lesson. We've got to get our arms now around the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ first before we get back to the parables. Again, why this foray into the apostles first? Because as I've been teaching for years now, context is what? is key. Context is key. Let me give you this, and I'm almost out of time, so. Context is key. The encouraging apostles. Satan's strategy is to make the apostles out to be superhuman and therefore relegate them unrelatable. That's what Satan wants you to think. Satan wants you to think that these parables walked on what? Well, Peter did for a while, right? But you know what I mean? That these apostles were stupendous, incredible, out-of-the-gate, naturally gifted people. And they were not. That's the whole point. They actually weren't. They were unremarkable people. <laughs> so Satan's strategy is to make the apostles out to be superhuman and therefore relegate them unrelatable. He doesn't want you relate. He doesn't want us to pick up our Bibles, even outside of this church, read them at home and be like, this is awesome. Man, I'm just like Peter. I have the foot-in-the-mouth-itis. Or I'm just like so-and-so, wondering who's the greatest. Or I'm just like, you know, so-and-so who ran away when times got tough. Turn their back on Jesus when they said, I'll never do that, Lord. How many people have even 
not turn their back on him since Christmas. In all fairness, we do it every day. We do it every time we sin. We do it every time we plan on sinning. <laughs> John, John, you must be a big sinner. <laughs> Starting off the new year right. <laughs> John's like, you're going to do it. You go big, right? <laughs> Satan's strategy, and I'll leave you with this, I guess, because it's five. Uh, this thing says 530. It's... Uh, 8.30. Satan's strategy is to make the apostles out to be superhuman and therefore relegate them unrelatable. However, in fact, they are the exact opposite. Jesus chose them knowing we'd be able to relate to them as fellow sinners who needed a Savior. He chose them that way. He wants us to relate to them. He doesn't want us to have this crazy sense of, oh boy, I'll, I'll never be able to accomplish anything like that. Or, God will never be able to do that kind of good work in me. That's what Satan wants you to believe. That's what he wants you to believe. Don't buy the lie. It's a lie. They, if they were standing up here, they'd be upset. The greatest thing that they had going for them is they were humble. At least enough to learn. At least enough to follow Jesus. At least enough to say, I don't want the self-life. I'm going to follow you. Of course, they're stumbling all over the place and making a mess of things. But you know what they had? They had that perseverance to keep stepping forward. Does that sound like any of you? I mean, who hasn't? Let's face it. We're all laughing at John, but every one of you is sinners. I mean, we're all failing every day, right? But what do we do? You're here. Somehow you got here. Somehow you were earnest enough to hear the Word of God preached another day. You must want Jesus your heart must have been changed. There's got to be something in there, that little light of mine. I'm going to what? Oh, come on. Right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? That's why you're here. That's all they had. They were unremarkable too. We're going to learn this. Poor Peter. It's hilarious, right? Imagine having... The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords say, Get behind me, Satan. Oh, how crushing would that be? But yet, that was Peter, the leader of the early church, whom Jesus chose, knowing who Peter was. Jesus chose you. The Lord God chose you from eternity past. You are one of his sheep. So we've got quite a road in front of us. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a change of pace. Uh, and I hope you're as encouraged about it as I am. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for such a wonderful privilege to gather together again as family this evening to break the bread that matters most, the bread of life, the Word of God. Father, thank you for this privilege and this opportunity. Not just that, Father, but to take what we've known, what's been revealed to us, what's been given to us by grace, faith, and take it out to a world that's decrepit and depraved and for the most part doesn't even know it, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to bring the gospel, the good news about our Lord and Savior, your Son, to that world. We ask for traveling mercies as we head on out. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.